What'd you think about waking up to that snow this morning? Was it just a, oh, well, here we go. What was your, what was your emotion? I was prepared for it. You were, you were prepared. Yeah. And it's not something that you need to get your snowblower out from, you know, so it, it looked nice until people started driving on it. So I remember no, not knowing what a snowblower is. Those were the days, mm. <laughs> the days before Minnesota. But if it weren't for Minnesota, I wouldn't have learned about the Schubert Club. They've been great friends and we're glad to have them as a supporter here. Since 1882, Schubert Club has been cultivating a passion for music and fosters an engaged community of music enthusiasts through concerts, music education, museum exhibits, and student scholarships. More on Schubert Club here in a few minutes. But when I, I think about that snow, <laughs> I'm thinking about taking refuge. You know, it's the, the one thing I will say is very cozy to get, wake up on a Monday morning and the streets are covered in snow. And knowing that you don't have to go out there in it, at least not me anyway, it just <laughs> just makes me feel very uh, cozy and and safe. Like, you know, I'm I've taken refuge mm-hmm. somewhere. What do you think about taking refuge? What do you what do you uh, what do you think about when you hear that word refuge? I was about to say my home, but really I think it's radar. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's I, so sweet. I, I know I don't want to be trite or anything, but if if radar's around, you know, that then things are good. Um, but yeah, I would say more, more broadly, my home, I'm a nester. Yeah, me too. I've learned to be, but let's say you're out and about, you're on a business trip or you're wherever and, Mm -hmm. you know, it starts to pour down rain or you just need to kill 45 minutes before you go to your next thing. What is the, um, what, 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 what gets you into a space as far as that sort of refuge? What do you need to see um, glowing in neon in the window or, or, or whatever? What, what, what are you attracted to when it, when it comes to taking refuge publicly? Some place that is, has a healthy bustle but is not a madhouse busy. Mm-hmm. No televisions. Oh, okay. And maybe one musician over in the corner not playing something. You know, the crowd isn't there for the music. The music is a nice compliment. Yeah. I'm thinking of someplace like Tongue in Cheek on the east side. You sure, know, some, yeah. Some little dimly lit place where you can have a drink and a nap or blow a whole wad of cash, sure, whichever, sure. whichever you choose. You know, it's so sad as a, a musician, as music lovers, it seems like most of the musicians I know kind of pack up and leave a restaurant as soon as they see some live music about to start. <laughs> right. But the issue is that it's just always so loud. It, the, right. It takes over. Oh my mm-hmm. goodness. But you know, when, when uh, I go to New York, you know, I was in New York last week for work. I often find myself somewhere out and about and I have a short amount of time to just do nothing or, you know, time to kill before my next meeting, 30 minutes, an hour or whatever. And last week I found myself in that situation. I was uh, in Little Italy. I had a a dinner meeting that wasn't going to start for another 45 minutes. So I was walking up and down the street. Weather's nice. So I'm just kind of peeking around, but I want to grab one drink and uh, I come up on uh, this door that's glowing pink and blue the the colors inside reminded me exactly of my own home you know so i was like oh okay, I, I, the nesting I, thing again. I guess someone has you know similar taste but it said uh gg's lounge shout out to gg's lounge in new york and i peek my head inside and there's all of this fancy victorian furniture and like hmm. i said the lights are glowing but 
it's kind of empty. You talk about you like to see a place with a, a healthy bustle. Well, this place was a little empty. So I was like, well, is this a, a private party or, <laughs> or I wonder if I should go in there? But I just said, you know, what, what whatever, let, let's just see. So I walk in and um, sit at the bar and it, was, it just happened to be empty in there. And um, I, I had my little fancy, you know, hipster drink that the, the bartender made. I, would, I hate that I can't uh, remember her name. And just as I'm looking around and feeling the the vibe of the place i was really feeling that refuge you know as stressful as work can yeah. be sometimes yeah. and you of course that. new york will just try to kill you i mean it is a living organism that Did you just sleep? beats you down no of course not but, <laughs> <laughs> but just being in that space for that amount of time with the soft you know colors and a nice drink and uh some really nice music it really painted the picture. And one of the songs that kind of got my ear as I was enjoying this moment of peace is one that I didn't know by an artist I didn't know. So I just wanted to uh, share a little bit of it here in the intro. It's a tune called Best to You by an artist known as Blood Orange. Let's listen to a little of this. But I'd rather be nothing to you than be a part of something, of something that I didn't do. So I'm sure you can imagine it, picture it, you know, it's hustle and bustle and taxis and people and all of that stuff outside, but you're in this place, it feels warm, it feels safe, and you have this vibe going. It's, it's nice. a vibe, isn't it? It's well, very good. Well, what is it about the general aesthetic of of this tune that kind of grabs your ear? It grabbed my ear. I wonder what it is for you. That's right. That's something that you really can't define, can you? That it seems to tap into that familiarity area, mm -hmm. but you don't know why you know it. Yeah. You know, it just seems like it might be the uh, the B-side of an album that you like. I don't know. So in this, what I'll call a, a, a perfect unease <laughs> in a place of peace, you know, you have this city that's all around you. You're surrounded by concrete and brick and, you know, you, you're in this space that feels soft and cozy and like a refuge. Uh, I asked the bartender, you know, at, after a while, you know, there's no one coming in there. So I just kind of pick up conversation and I ask her about, you know, are you from here? Do you live here? What's going on? So I learned a bit of her story and I just want to ask her, is it worth it? What all of the things that you have to sacrifice, sacrificing space, spending so much money, is it mm. really worth it to you to be a New Yorker? What and she you know, she she was talking about how her first year in New York, in retrospect, she has to say no because that was COVID and she couldn't really go anywhere. Oh, and she hadn't been. What is it? What, what is it to live in New York and you have to be trapped in your box? You could live anywhere. Why? Why am I spending four thousand dollars a month? You know, oh. <laughs> to to not do anything. You know, but eventually she talks about you know getting into it and you know happy to be there and and no regrets. I wonder how you determine um, if something is worth it or not and how long you stick with something. I wonder how many times in your life have you asked yourself that question? Am I am what I doing right now? Is it worth it? <laughs> <laughs> when was the last time you asked yourself that, honestly? Um uh let's see. I can measure <laughs> what that. What time is it? I yeah. can measure that by my watch. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but really, like can you remember a time when you're you were really pondering that for yourself? Yeah. Yeah. I lived here for maybe three or four years and just the the things on on the social front weren't happening. 
and working overnight, it really made it a challenge, you yeah. know. And I, I wasn't blaming anybody. I was just like, I, I think, I think this is about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, something happened. Some little thing happened that turned me around in a moment, just as quickly as I went down that rabbit hole. Right. Right. Yeah, I don't remember what it was, but you know, something good happened. You mm-hmm. know, I'm no idea. Sometimes, uh, lately, uh, you know, if I'm going to be honest, this is called triloquy. There, there have been times when you know I've asked myself, "Is it worth it?" It's a lot on my body, on my nerves to you know travel back and forth, and then it's not like I'm on vacation. Once I get to New York City, like I'm hustling and bustling, just like the rest of the people uh, doing doing the rat race there. And you know, it can it can be really stressful. It can be just I don't know, very fatiguing on not only the body but the spirit. So. I think that question is something that I ask myself often, not as a means of complaining, but just making sure that I want to stay in it. If I ask myself, okay, I am exhausted right now. I'm ready to go home. Is this worth it? If I can really come to what I'm doing with that raw energy and come out on the other side, continuing the journey, I think that that's that that's proof of of uh, purpose. But that brings up a very good question because you have proved that you don't need to be in a brick and mortar media production. You know, you're doing all of your production right here. Mm-hmm. So, what keeps you from going back to Knoxville and commuting to New York from Knoxville? Um, I've gotten in a little trouble in Knoxville, first of all. So there's a little bit of that. Oh, <laughs> oh. Um, but also it's the uh network that I've built here. You know, I, I don't take for granted, of course, getting to spend time with you each and every week and all of the other people that I've met, all of the artists, all just the regular folks. I, I feel, you know, I, I was at a birthday party uh, last Friday. Shout out to uh, Clara. Happy belated birthday. One of the things that we were talking about was the fact that groups of friends here in Minnesota tend to be groups of transplants. And, 100%. That's and, right. And there are a lot of people who never find that group, never really find that in and, you know, end up moving away or just not really having a great time here in Minnesota for many years. I don't take for granted the the network and the and the friends that I've I've cultivated. I think that's one of the main reasons why we're still here and not It took a anywhere. solid solid 8 years for that to happen for me. Yeah. Mhm. But I, I think, you know, really the the point I want to make here in this introduction is that, you know, we talk about refuge, we talk about safe feelings, but we also can't take for granted the opportunity to dialogue and get into conversation. Yes, I was enjoying the music and GGs and the vibe, but getting to really have an honest conversation that speaks to some of my experience that was speaking to her experience, you know, is it worth it? Do you feel like you're on the right path? There's a lot of learning there. There's a lot of sharing there. I think learning from the intersections of our shared realities is how we become more informed, uh, more well-rounded, and just Mm. folks who know how to engage the world. It's, you know, if anything, definitely what we try to do here on this podcast called Triloquy. Let's go ahead and jump in. I'm Scott Blankenship, and this is Triloquy, 
Opus 174. Thank you so much for continuing to listen to this little show of ours to returning listeners. We could not do this without you. Thank you so much for your continued support. To new listeners, if this is your first time checking out the Triloquy podcast, Triloquy is a podcast that takes the phrase and the concept of classical music and sits it next to conversations that haven't always been in the concert hall. Uh, We apply it to stories that uh, fit into that idea of classical music in a different way, all toward the ultimate goal of decolonizing classical music, creating a so-called genre that affects more people and uh, speaks to our perspectives and experiences in a more genuine way. For more information on the Triloquy podcast, to learn uh, more about the background, to listen to past opuses and to contribute, visit our website, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y dot O-R-G. In addition to your very generous support, support for the Triloquy podcast comes from Schubert Club. They have some exciting stuff coming up in December. On December 5th, they're releasing their latest museum mini. So we were talking about the Music Museum minis last week with uh, Maria Issa with her mm, uh, mm-hmm. her drum video. By the way, now that I'm thinking about it, she did end up uh, winning her race. So, yeah. you know, Maria Issa is officially, well, I guess she's the uh, uh, representative elect but you know my state representative so someone I know and someone who the community knows it's an exciting time to have so you know congratulations and shout out to uh, Maria Issa anyway uh, in the latest uh Uh, Schubert Club Music Museum Mini that they're putting out on December 5th is going to feature a a, a demonstration of the French horn. (laughs) I couldn't get the word demonstration out. A demonstration of the French horn by Kevin Newton, who's uh, one of the newest, I think the newest member of Imani Winds. It says here, listen to the French horn played by Kevin Newton of Imani Winds. Discover how the prominent bell, rotary valves, and up to 12 feet of curved tubing help produce the bold yet velvety sounds of the French horn. You don't hear a French horn described as velvety every day, do you? I guess when Kevin Newton is playing it, though, you bold velvety. and velvety, right? <laughs> so that's coming out on uh, December fifth. Shout out to Kevin Newton, and then also on December fifth, Accordo is playing uh, a concert. They're a string quartet uh, with former members of the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra and the Minnesota Orchestra. They're doing a repeat show on December sixth at Ice House in mm, Minneapolis. Cool. I think it's cool all the stuff that Ice House uh, has. It's a great uh, space. In, in their in their space, you know, this bar that uh, just showcases all sorts of music. Anyway, you can learn more about all of Schubert Club's upcoming events at Schubert.org. Huge shout out to everyone over there. And thank you for your continued support of the Triloquy podcast. Elijah Daniel Smith comes back in the third movement for part two of our conversation. Very happy to feature him. Uh, I'm going to bring in some music by Sean Apebolo in the second movement. What, what's your uh, second movement music? What are you digging into? There's a a piece called A Different Soldier's Tale by James Lee III. Oh, yeah. Um, we missed Veterans Day. We didn't mention Veterans Day yeah. last week. So this is sort of a, 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 a retrospective on, yeah. <laughs> on this yeah. year's Shout Veterans out to all Day. the veterans. Yes. Thank you for your service. Uh, and then in the triloquy, uh, I'm a mention a, a couple things, including politics, because I'm, I'm, I'm going to dip my toe into that pond just a little bit, but that's not until the fourth movement. So we're going to jump now into the very first movement. So one of the things I want to talk about uh, in this first accidental that I'm giving a sharp is the idea of classical music, so-called classical music intersecting with 
broader media, written media, radio, of course, but now we're talking about social media and all these things. I know, Scott, that all generations, you know, every latest generation think they just invented something, that they Mm -hmm. reinvented the wheel. But can you not (laughs) admit to some degree that my generation, millennials and younger, have placed conversations that uh, are approximate to classical music in broader spaces, in new spaces, and apply them in new ways. That's fair. I mean, you mm-hmm. you, you, you got to give us that much. Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, what what, do you, what what was the edginess that was happening for for, for your generation on radio? And, and what ways do you think new ground was uh, was being covered when you were you know starting your career in radio and doing that stuff? Trying to make people understand that Philip Glass and Michael Torkey were okay. Mm-hmm. It's okay. <laughs> your date is not ruined by a few repeated notes. Okay? Okay. Right. Right. <laughs> well, um, I'm, I'm mentioning that because I'm just so happy to be in the uh, classical music ecosystem as a podcaster alongside our friends over at Classically Black. Shout out to Delaney Harris and extra shout out this week to Katie Brown, who wrote a piece that's getting a lot of attention from ICareIfYouListen.com. She wrote, What Classical Musicians Can Learn from HBCU Marching Bands. Again, congratulations and shout out to Katie Brown for this really incredible piece. So you know what HBCU marching bands are now. Now. I'm sure that wasn't always the case. What was your exposure to uh, the marching bands of historically black colleges and universities? I found out about it probably uh, late grade school, early junior high, because my neighbor buddy, Joe, played on a drum line. Oh, at the the school in a different part of town? And he was two houses (laughs) over. (laughs) Okay, go on, continue. He's two houses (laughs) over. So- yeah, he, he they t- they would take me to the competitions. Oh, okay, oh, and, nice. And I and I learned about HBCUs through the back door of that. Gotcha. And and that that unique style of of musicking mm-hmm. that they do. I remember when uh, Beyonce's Homecoming came out, and everyone was talking about that. You know, of course, her her show was uh, very reminiscent. You know, an ode to that culture. I remember one of the things uh, you're talking about is a sense of identity, a sense of community that's showcased in that mm-hmm. type of of music making. I wonder if you can say more to that. What do you what do you see when you see those those dancers and those instrumentalists and and all those folks in step and really into it? You 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 you're sensing some community there. Of course, but there's also um a bit more of a fascination with it because I simply didn't have it around me growing up. Mm-hmm. And since I didn't find out that what an HBCU was until I was probably in junior high school. Phew, Maybe even early. It doesn't matter when. I was young. Yeah. And I didn't see it around me. And I I am not I'm not afraid to say that my high school band was not good. Sure. They they were not cut. <laughs> a lot a lot of them aren't. <laughs> so, I mean, if we really go get to it. <laughs> right. So that was, you know, the halftime show wasn't as much of a spectacle. Yeah. And so I look at it with a little bit more of a fascination about me. Yeah. Yeah, it's just new. It's it's just different. Well, just to you know, go back to this article by uh, Katie Brown. The point that she's making throughout this piece is that this HBCU band culture has a lot to offer to the classical music world, the so-called traditional classical music world, and the things that can be learned. So I, I picked out a, a few little uh, 
uh, excerpts from it here. Uh, one thing that Katie points out, she says, in this time of classical music reform, one of the main lessons we can learn from HBCU marching bands is the ability to maintain musical traditions while also responding to the surrounding culture. Mm-hmm. I think that's, of course, that $7 million question, how do you maintain traditions while engaging new audiences? But the point that she's making is that they're not just engaging new audiences or trying to do that, but really responding to the surrounding culture in a measurable way, in right. a way that you can actually hear. I wonder why is that such a challenge on the classical music side? I, I suppose, you know, I'll I'll say that maybe it's easier for an HBCU band to arrange the latest track on the radio that all the black folks are listening to, and now you're just doing it. Of course, there's behind the scenes thing, rights and and uh, you know, writing the publishers. I took that class in college. I, I know how all of that works. But at the end of the day, it just seems like classical music just refuses to let go of the tradition enough to actually do that, at least in a in a measurable way, in a mm-hmm. very to the front way. There's a few things that she points out that I thought was really interesting because it puts a finer point on some things that we've talked about. She says, only in the aftermath of racial reckoning of 2020 do we start to see regularly programmed works by canonic black composers mm-hmm. outside of Black History Month. And if you look at the timeline of things, that's a pretty quick shift in a short span of time, yeah. two-ish years. Yeah. Okay, so there, there, there is some, for people like myself who've been announcing this music for 30 years, I feel a seismic shift. Yeah, sure, of course. Um, but there's a, a, a different point that I wanted to bring up here near the bottom. She says something that I have talked about. No one is asking orchestras to completely abandon canonical repertoire, but an exclusive folk, <sighs> But an exclusive focus on tradition without engaging the local musical community is a disservice. I have heard her describe a good program as Jennifer Higdon, Hale Stork, and Mahler Five. Sure. Okay, so that's something for everyone, right? I sigh because (laughs) we're okay leaving one style or ultimately one community completely in the dust for the sake of tradition. But when it comes to acknowledging that community, the idea of exclusively and intentionally doing something is going too far. So, mm. you know, I'm, I'm, right. not, I'm not saying that finding balance is bad. I just, it, it irks me to think about the fact that imbalance is only allowed to go one way and not the other. That's my point about it. Um, she points out here, um, sincere and valiant is the way she describes the effort that organizations need to uh, need to need to use to learn more about the community around them, interacting with community members outside of special outreach concerts, learning what is, excites them about music, and extending invitations to attend regular season programming. So let's say you are tasked with um, doing just that. In the community where community where you live over on the east side of uh, St. Paul, mm-hmm. you know it's time to actually learn about these people. We aren't talking about a transactional relationship where we're offering you something to come hear this concert or be a thing. You, it, it's one way you are learning about this community. What's your approach to that? Where do you go? Do you hang out? At, <laughs> sorry, I was, I was going to say, do you hang out at the barbershop? I mean, you can. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, because you know you you got a beard that you know deserves. Uh, 
it's it's time in the chair. Mm. I mean, or do you hang out at a restaurant, or is it the park when the uh, when the weather is nicer? What do you consider of the spaces? where the community is at mm. and, and where you can learn from this. Sure. Um, in spring and summer months, when it's nice and the windows are open, I can hear traditional Hmong music just pouring out of windows. Like instruments and, and stuff. Right. Not, not from a recording or anything. They're actually making the music there. And uh, there's loads of uh, people that do outdoor uh, multi-people dance, mm -hmm. traditional dance over there around Lake Phelan. And we also have a sister city garden uh, with a uh, Chinese pagoda. And it's really a beautiful setup that is a, people come there for photography in really elaborate traditional clothing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I would start there. That's, that, that's, that's something. So once, once the learning is happening, I think that next step, and maybe it's the step that uh, the the tr traditional classical music, Western classical music institutions can't quite grasp is how to create relationships mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. that. Okay, so now we're learning that you exist, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, because really that's what, you know, anyway, don't get me down that rabbit. But uh, <laughs> see, now you have me because I think that's a part of the point. It's like because we have this audience and these funders and whatever. It doesn't matter if they're there or not because mm -hmm. we have our thing. So I, you know, I, I do think that's something of note to acknowledge these communities exist, a, and then now acknowledging that these communities have arts, have things that already exist there because we talk about bringing the arts to these. Well, they, the arts are there. It, it's it's different, but they're there. So okay, so now that's step two. I guess that step three, that third base, is actually getting that engagement in, and that's where the the difficulty can can lie oftentimes mm. at least that's that, that's the evidence i see now these days the twin cities has i believe it's still the case the largest Hmong population outside of laos yeah the, and so there is a a huge community to reach out to and also on the east side you have somali and latino communities right. that you know, the, just loads of fertile and ground. And over here on the west side, of course, you of know, course. it's 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 all of the uh, Latine communities. Right. So I, anyway, I, I think that is, you know, a very important point that Katie is is making here, that you have to actually not only acknowledge these communities, but make, as she say, what a valiant effort mm -hmm. to actually learn about them and Valiantly. engage them. Yeah. Um, so she points out here, it's rare to find a classical music institution that does tradition and revolution equally well. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's possible? I definitely think it's possible. What does it look like then? I think it looks like a focus on the now and and on the new because wrapped inside of new, you know, let, let's recenter these uh, HBCU marching bands inside of the high kicks and the and the majorettes and the uh, uh, transcriptions of the hip hop songs and all of that stuff is the same uh, eight note scale that everyone else is. Is the same uh, technique, is the same uh, foundational training. So mm. you know, for for me, I think it requires a, a reframing and a rethought of what we're considering the tradition, quote unquote. The tradition mm. is in there. The musicianship is there. It's just being utilized in a different way. Mm -hmm. I think. That can exist, but we have to relegate the performance the the performance of these instruments to an adherence to a very specific 
tradition rooted in one part of the world that has, you know, spread across the world colonially and all that stuff, all that conversation. Mm. I think it is possible. There just has to be a divestment from the idea of tradition and how we're framing what the tradition is. I think my opinion is that the tradition is in the new. It's it's more foundational to the new than to the front, but mm. it's still there. So what do we do for the people that have a mostly white community to introduce them to this idea of HBCUs? How does that word get out? Well, there um, there's a lot of footage out there. We, we were talking about classical music movies <laughs> last mm-hmm. week, right? What, what's mm-hmm. a good one? I, I, maybe I mentioned it. I don't remember, but there is the film Drumline, right? And you know, shout you out to Nick Cannon. Yeah, that that is. I feel like that is something that just showed that tradition to a, a broader audience, to a wider audience. Um, but there's just also, uh, I guess, mainly for people who live in the South, the ability for folks to go to the football game. You know, just to, right. just to see what's going on where I'm from in Memphis. They have something called the Southern Heritage Classic is every year when Tennessee State University and Jackson State University, they meet in the middle in Memphis to have this football game. But really, the draw of that football game is not only the halftime show, but the uh, the fifth quarter, what they call the fifth quarter, which is after the game when you have the Battle of the Bands and, and all of those things. Okay. So the opportunities are there. You know, I guess it's just about, uh, I don't know, you, you don't have to market to, to those the, to the communities that that music comes from because they they just know. So I guess if it, it is there really a need uh, for that art to engage that broader audience? I think that's one of the foundational differences. When we talk about HBCU marching bands, we aren't talking about a relic. We aren't talking about something that's struggling, that's mm. looking for broader audiences or, you know, it's, it's doing fine. Cl- classical music doesn't quite have that, that privilege. And I think that's the difference in the, in the conversation of how do we spread this thing? How do we get more people talking about it? You mentioned drumline. How accurate? How accurate is it? I mean, that's going to be a late night, you know? <laughs> so if we're in the fifth quarter, is some major hip-hop artist going to roll out in a roll? It could happen. Oh, yes. It could happen. Hmm. That That is definitely a thing. And that was the exciting thing about that film. It just... Hmm. Uh, gave a glimpse into that world. There's one more thing I want to make sure I highlight before we leave uh, this accidental. (laughs) Katie says here, and I quote, classical music uh, musicians can also turn to HBCU bands to learn the value of putting on a good show. Is that wrong? React. (laughs) Because nobody on this podcast ever said that HBCUs didn't put on a good show. No, one time. I'm I'm not looking for that, but I, I. I guess just the obviousness of it is that <laughs> you have a good time mm. at these shows, at, at these performances. You're on your feet. You're you're react. It's it's, it's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. The concert hall <laughs> is so often not that. It's like I, I, we've said it all the time on this show. There is an education sort of history, sort of learning factor to classical music that has to go away. For you know, some of that more genuine engagement to happen, you don't have to come to the table of an HBCU marching band thinking about history or or what you know or what you don't know. You just you react to the space and mm-hmm. it's fun. That's not the case in uh, in a lot of orchestral spaces. Is there something to shifting that? Because 
you know, sometimes going to an art museum is fun. And a, an art museum is not a, a rock concert or whatever, but it has its place. So I, I wonder if, uh, if, if that's just what we need to admit to ourselves when it comes to orchestral music. This isn't a space that was meant to be, you know, clap your hands, stomp your feet. So sit down there and be quiet and clap when we tell you to. Is, is that just what we need to accept? I guess it's not. I guess it's fair to say that it those spaces weren't built for that. But who's to say that it can't be that? Why why can't we change it in into that? It was the Beethoven era that ushered in the sit down and be quiet and and let this happen to you. Mm-hmm. That that Beethoven mm-hmm. <laughs> because mm-hmm. Uh, we we talked about it just a, a few opuses ago. Uh, prior to that, all sorts of things were going on during a concert. Yeah, you eat, could get, you could eating, eat, pulling the curtain back. You and, could get it in a fight. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you could heckle. Yeah, all all kinds of all stuff. That. Yeah, well, maybe we can get back. Maybe maybe we can meet in the middle because <laughs> I, I don't need somebody to get into a fight while I'm trying to listen to the whatever. Um, one one final final thing I, I want to bring up, you know, and this isn't really laid out in the article, but it just makes me think about when we think about HBCU style bands. There are still plenty of core style bands. You know, Drum Corps International DCI is still a major industry Mm -hmm. so that style of outside music is also not going anywhere i think when we talk about the evolution of concert spaces does it just boil down to those cultural lines is it is it that we need to be more comfortable acknowledging that there are certain communities who are interested in this and they're going to come over here there are other communities that are interested in another thing and if they're just <laughs> separate but equal, so be it. It's, it. it's kind of a grim thing to to sort of accept. It, it's not that I want the core style to go away, but it just it seems like there has to be some use of the arts bridging communities instead of reinforcing cultural divides. I think that that is a place where they can really play that role well because don't don't we already have the places that we go? to be around the members of our community. Yeah. I mean, don't we have the places where we, you know, you talked about feeling at Gigi's. You talked about having yep. that that feeling of uh, of coziness. Mm-hmm. Now, I realized there was nobody in there with you, but would, have, would that have changed if there was a healthy bustle? I think it would have. And, and maybe uh, okay. the... The ex- yeah, maybe I, maybe I wouldn't have enjoyed the experience as much if it was. I certainly wouldn't have if it was shoulder to shoulder and I'm wading through a space and, you know, so I, I don't know. Basically, what I'm saying is I think that arts organizations are in a u- unique position to be a uniting presence mm. rather than a separating one. Well, let's get to it. And shout out to Katie Brown again for this brilliant article from ICareIfYouListen.com. At the very beginning of the article, Katie talks about sort of her foray into this idea of HBCU marching bands, a performance by Southern University of a composition titled Can You Stand the Rain? One of those classic works by uh, New Edition, a uh, a transcription of it anyway. So we're going to transition into our next accidental by listening to a little bit of that performance. Can You Stand the Rain? by New Edition as performed by the Southern University Human Jukebox. This is from 2014. Shout out to them.
you know, we talk about music education. So this video was taken, this performance uh, took place in 2014. College freshmen, sophomores in 2014 in this band were born 1996. 1997. So new edition mm. is not a part of their, <laughs> you know, growing up. Uh, it, it, that That's not what happened. And at the same time, they know the music, you know, maybe th their parents or uncles or whatever exposed them to it, but they're learning it in college as well. You see, they are getting a music education. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think it's important to note that because when we talk about music history and and those sorts of things it's so easy to just automatically uh, jump way back to Bach and motets and and all of that stuff but mm. that's music education as well doesn't not does it not warm your heart to know that some youngling somewhere is as familiar <laughs> with the music that you were doing the running man to as like you are? 99, you know? <laughs> 99 problems right. making its way into, into bluegrass. Sure. <laughs> anyway, shout out to um, Katie Brown. Very, uh, very incredible article. All right. We got one more accidental. Scott, you uh, put this one on my radar. What a, uh, what accidental do you want to give this? I'm giving this a sharp two. Sharp? All right. What uh, we got here? APU.edu is where you'll find the article. The title is Karen Hall, Reimagining Classical Music Through Clowning. You know Karen Hall. Yeah, I've uh, had the pleasure of performing with uh, Karen a few times out in uh, Los Angeles. I, I'm, I, if I'm remembering correctly, we were both in the... Um, the pre-professional orchestra, the American Youth Symphony. But I know for a fact that we met on the set of Glee. She was mm -hmm. uh, among the other musicians who magically appear, you know, <laughs> into a scene when a, <laughs> when a song begins. So, yeah, it was it, it's cool to, to, to see Karen's uh, profile and, and light shining here. She mentions that in the article that she I, I think it said something like she had the most hours on screen as, you know, uh, yeah. as a backing musician. So congratulations for that. But that helped her to get more gigs and she started doing improv and um, she was looking for a way to, I, I guess creating relationships is sort of the theme of this opus because she was looking for ways to connect with the audience. Mm -hmm. And through improv, she got into clowning and the way that she uses it, now once you said after you left APM, when you were terminated from APM, that there were people on Reddit saying that you were playing hip hop, <laughs> you said they really thought I was clowning. <laughs> Especially down in Texas. By the time the story got down there, they really thought I was playing rap. And I was like, I, I mean, <laughs> anyway, water, water under the bridge. <laughs> go on okay but clowning right yeah. okay so in so, so for being, those not so, in the vernacular right so being ridiculous really okay. just just throwing convention out the window and just doing something so the article the article starts with this descriptor of what just what you might expect you're going to go in you're going to hear some bach cello music mm -hmm. right and the lights dim and everybody falls quiet and the cellist comes out and before playing the music eats a sandwich slowly start to finish <laughs> with just, everybody just full, just looking out right into the <laughs> you know and maybe stopping for a minute like ooh. <laughs> and but, doing that whole thing and then playing the cello and and does both well she eats the sandwich well and she plays the cello well your reaction your feedback if you were in the the audience for that performance you know 
I think if I knew something crazy would happen, <laughs> I would just sit there and okay. So, so, so this, eating is, a, this is the this is the clowning. Eating know? a sandwich is crazy. I mean, sitting on stage and eating one as the, as what we're here to be entertained by. That's mm. I mean that that's I think that counts as clowning. <laughs> if, but if I did not know that that was happening, I feel like I would <laughs> just be staring and really trying to figure out for a minute. Okay. So this is a part of the show or what you know, like I, I think you would be just in that range of disbelief and wonder and confusion. You would just do that. Is it too <laughs> risky? Do you think it's too risky as a choice? Too risky to do something like that? Yeah. I mean, what's the risk? An audience member walking out or something? I mean Or the, they bought the ticket at that point. Perhaps so. right. Or perhaps <laughs> they don't take you seriously. I, I see what you're saying. I, I guess there there is that risk, but I don't know what what do you see as the point of this? It's not just shtick. There is something behind this clowning that Karen Hall is doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she was talking about um, the way that the clown is like the 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 genuine, honest reaction to the stimulus around you, mm -hmm. and that the clown you you encourage them do more do more go crazier be sillier so it's about you know, audience like, interaction and making those connections right um the one thing that i wondered about you know because victor borga did it you know victor borga right no okay well <laughs> the, here go the liver spots showing up on my hands again uh victor borga was a, a pianist that played beautifully he was a concert level pianist but he built in real comedic elements oh sure uh, to his to his performances, and I wonder if there is a risk of getting that label. Mm -hmm. You know that that you're you're not a serious musician. You have you're you're, you're you have clowning with your compositions. Yep. Well, I mean, I think let's talk about icebreakers. Let's talking about taking the. Uh, the stuffiness out of a space it really does that and by the time you get done watching karen eat the sandwich or whatever she does that's in this clowning and she plays uh the bach cello suites or, or or whatever she's playing i think the air is so unheavy that maybe there's more room to actually enjoy what you're listening to and enjoying the personality behind these notes instead of sitting there silently uh, in in a in a more conventional way, I, th I think there's some magic to this sort of approach. The reason why I ask that is because the article says, as a highly skilled musician, Hall has persevered through the physical and mental tolls yeah. that come from a demanding career. It'll wear you now, down, right? Okay, so now you add this element to it. That's mm -hmm. I, I would I would think that in a lot of circles, people would see that as a risk. Yeah, perhaps not you or I, but somebody else would go. Mm, I I'd like it if she just played. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, but and he, I, I guess it's hard for me to really understand how to react to the idea of this being uh, quote unquote risky because if 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 person A who is there to only hear Bach cello suites in the most conventional way, if that's who you're centering, there are other people whose opinions you don't care about which means they don't take you seriously mm -hmm. you know they're 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 not in oh i didn't mean to hit the applause uh, <laughs> i'm applauding myself no um so i i think there's that you know so you can talk about risk of losing this audience but 
you, <laughs> if word about this gets out, there, which it right, has, you'll get a different audience. So what, there's no risk. There's reward. There's there. room for it. There's yeah. room for it. Um, you know, sort of, uh, it, it reminds me of something that Steve Martin might do that, you know, you have to, you have to be patient and sure. you have to go through it because, uh, at the end, there's usually this big payoff, right? Um, one of the other things that I love about what she is doing is in response to her struggles with mental health, she founded the Musician Health Resource. Yeah. And this is a company intended to help musicians as they work through internal and external struggles. Man, if you have somebody that understands the struggle that you can talk to, and someone who you aren't also in competition with. See, uh, Karen is in a place in her career where she has found what she's doing. So mm -hmm. folks on the audition circuit or folks trying to form their career, X, Y, and Z, she can, and not that she wouldn't, I'm not saying that, but you know, there's just a difference between having dialogue, having that interaction with someone who doesn't have anything to lose or gain by giving you advice or or spending yeah. time with you. I think there's magic to that. And to, you know, so kind of uh, uh, pull on that thread a little bit, I like a, uh, something that uh, she says in here. Uh, she says, it's the balance of making sure the audience is happy. Again, talking about the clowning. It's this balance of making sure the audience is happy, but making sure you're not surrendering your joy either. I think that has been one of uh, my struggles over the course of my career in classical music. You know, one of the reasons I left the, the orchestral stage, it was like, okay, the audience is liking this. I'm doing this for an audience, but... I am, you know, am I selling my values or my beliefs or, or what I really believe yeah. in? Uh, you know, especially in, in radio. Listen, you brought up APM. Yes, I was I was switching up that playlist. I was not playing rap. Maybe I should have. It <laughs> <That> was so <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> but there, it just got to a point where I was embarrassed. I I, I couldn't stand behind the way that you know some of the playlists look. Who am I? This um, black. Uh, activist and, and classical music and so-called agitator trying to change things up. And I'm sitting here, you know, talking for 30 seconds about Baccarini and, and, or even Brahms or, or these folks, you know, every hour, day after day, it just didn't feel right. And I think, you know, reading that uh, can, can affirm so many other people. It's like in classical music, we spent so much time we invest in it so fully and so early mm -hmm. in, in our lives you know we're, we're 10 11 12 years old really dedicated to this thing and and, and that lasts and, and that lasts and sometimes i think it's easy to forget that you got to have fun too you can't just be a martyr to this thing because someone else likes it and i i really appreciate that karen is is uh, acknowledging that and, and digging into that here digging back to um what katie said in the previous uh, accidental it's rare to find classical music institutions who do tradition and revolution equally well mm -hmm. so perhaps karen is going to be the one to show us the way or or you know to revive that tradition of adding some irreverence to clowning yeah. in classical music i should say clowning but you know to just to circle back to you know one of those earlier points you got to have the chops if you're up there eating the sandwich and then you start playing the cello and you you know sound like shit that's not 
you know, that's that's the risk. That's right. when folks are going to start, you know, throwing stuff at you or, or walking out the room. So it's not that this is something that uh, Karen has just fallen back into. You know, she has done the work. She has spent the blood, sweat and tears in the practice room, just like all these other cellists. And she has found a way to engage different audiences, broader audiences and um, and, and to touch people's uh, personalities, touch people's human experience and not only their uh, their knowledge of Bach and, and their right. engagement of that right. artificial or otherwise. I think this is great and I hope she continues to take the show on tour. Yeah, she said she's <laughs> developing her show called Delusions and Grandeur. <laughs> Something that many of us have, delusions of grandeur, right? Anyway. <laughs> Shout out to uh, Karen Hall. Uh, congratulations to you and go check out that article from, what is it? Uh, APU.edu. Alright, well we're going to um, listen to Karen Karen Hall play a little bit one of these uh, play a little bit of one of these Bach cello suites as we get into the second movement here among the most traditional of all the music performed here by Karen Hall. You know, this is what I'm going to say about that conversation of balanced programs and things. I listened to this, uh, the, the prelude from this cello suite, and there are contexts under which it is kind of refreshing, even, you know, in, in my uh, radio days, to to have that come across the playlist or even for me to program it for, for some reason. It can be a, a nice palate cleanser or a nice reminder mm-hmm. or or something. So there is a place for it, but I just don't think it should be centered. We we spend too much time with music like that, so close to the center of what we do in our perspectives. I, I, that that's when the the balance conversation is something that I I push back on because if we're gonna you know be okay with imbalance, we have to be okay with imbalance over on the other side. Mm. You know, as as that, that that's just the point I make there. But it's a it's a nice piece of music. I'm I'm sure you can you know spin a yarn about it. When you need to, and even, have even as famous of a piece as it is, there's a, there's a place for it, and even I can say, you know, I can I can enjoy it in the right context. Exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, but we're here in the uh, second movement. We're not going to be talking about any Bach, but we are going to talk a little bit about some of the music that we've uh, been spending some time with since we spoke with y'all last. So uh, you'll go first this week, Scott. What do you have? Well, we uh, we passed Veterans Day since the last opus, and we didn't really touch on it last week, so a belated. I didn't know what was coming. Right. I, I called the bank on Thursday, and they said, "Oh, well, you better do this today because we're gonna be close tomorrow." So I'm like, "Oh, well, I'm not off work. So what's going on?" Uh, <laughs> but it's for the veterans, you know. That's right. Uh, initially, it was Armistice Day for um, now. Armistice Day is specifically for the veterans of World War One, mm-hmm. and then in 1954, I believe it was, it became Veterans Day. Just remembering all veterans mm-hmm. and my father is a vet both of my brothers served so the military was a a, a palpable presence yep. in my growing up and i'm curious um did, did your 
was your your father was in the Air Force, correct? Both of my parents were in the Air Force, and most of my uncles and aunts and and have they shared my stories? My sister was in, and yeah. Do they share stories with you? Sure. I mean, as far as I mean, not war stories. I don't. I don't know if my parents were ever in battle or mm-hmm. anything, but yeah, they're the stories of seeing the world. You know, the story of how they met is is tied to the military, and yeah, yeah. sure. I I got some of the Vietnam era stuff from mm-hmm. my father. I see, and. Uh, a little bit of Desert Storm from my brother. But the piece of music I wanted to bring in does pay respects to the veterans. It's written by James Lee III, and it's called A Different Soldier's Tale. And it's all loosely based on stories that his grandfather handed down, that his Mm -hmm. grandfather would share. And I can't tell you how many times I've thought of, uh, I I should be recording my father's stories. I have all this recording gear. Mm Mm-hmm. And he starts spinning a yarn, and I just think, wow, that's a great story. And it's off in the ether. you know. So I think it's great that James took some of those stories and made a piece of music out of it to sort of uh, uh, keep them and reiterate them. But some of them are chilling in that you know, the inspiration is being on night patrol. Mm. Another movement talks about you know, fear of, of Nazi execution. And there's moments where it is very calm, but I mean, this is just a pulsating piece of music that creates a little bit of disorientation. It doesn't affect, it creates just a little bit of a, an off-my-balance sort of uh, a feeling, particularly in the fourth movement. that's the type of piece that I would describe as angular. Like I love the angles of, of, of the piece. It's very exciting. That opening there definitely grabs your attention. It's called celebration of broad street, you know? So it, so that I guess there's some sort of celebration of it, but as you said, it's like an off kiltered sort of sound or a, yeah. Yeah. He said that uh, that movement was uh, part of the victory celebration returning home to Selma. I, I, I believe that was the movement, but it's, feels like it's really horn heavy, right? Mm-hmm. And, it, and it sort of felt like there was an echo coming off the stadium wall, maybe. Sure. You know, sure. It, you get that? Yeah. And they created that, he created that in the music, right? That's mm-hmm. not That's not a a recording trick, is it? I mean, I'm, could, I wasn't there, but, it, but there's definitely ways to do that. You would yeah. know more than I. Yeah, I mean, okay. it's, it's it's a cool, it's definitely a cool aesthetic, yeah. And uh, it's uh, I think it's a great way to immortalize the stories yeah. of his grandfather. What a great way to do it. I, and I'm also going to have to look up to see whether or not James went to an HBCU. Maybe, uh, maybe he's got a, a big brass background. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. Yeah, I've I've definitely um, aired lots of uh, uh, music by James Lee the uh, Third. He's had music performed by the Gateways Music Festival. Mm. So you know, it's he he's he's definitely uh, in the mix and doing some really incredible things does out he have, here in, in music. Does he have a specialty, or is that pretty representative of what he what he composes? I, I, it's interesting that you ask that because this 
piece of music falls outside of what I typically think of mm. when it when it comes to his uh, aesthetic. So I think it just uh, shows uh, the diversity of of his tactics and and uh, his his writing pen. So mm-hmm. shout out to James Lee the Third. That's a really cool piece of music. And shout out to Marin Alsop who uh, led that performance. Led that performance and uh, shout out to the veterans. Appreciate you. Absolutely. Well, uh, for my second movement this week, I'm going to go to the music um, of uh, Sean Apebelo. So, you know, like I said, I was in New York last week and um, <laughs> Caesar keeps, shout out to Caesar. Caesar <laughs> keeps me up late. Well, we'll, he'll show me a score and get excited about, you know, a a piece of music that a lot of folks don't know. We were up late last night listening to and following along the score of a piece by uh, Berlioz, The Death of Cleopatra. Oh, oh, yeah. You you, you know that one? That's a soprano. uh, right, I think it's a wow. so Right. Um, anyway, so we, we, so we are up doing a lot of that. Well, uh, at one point he's like, "Okay, well, you show me something. You you educate me now." So I, I wasn't, you know, I, I had to think about it for a while. And you know, again, it was midterm week. I, I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about it, but one of the news stories that kind of got brushed over or, or not focused on was the fact that there were black churches across the state of Mississippi burned down last week. You know, th- this this anti-black terrorism is still mm-hmm. very much alive. So that that's in the back of my mind. And of course, I'm thinking about new composers. I'm doing some, uh, actually some collaborations right now uh, with Sean Apebolo. So he was on my mind. And I remembered, you know, one of these works that um, he wrote, it's called Two Black Churches. So uh, it's music that, of course, um, shines a light back on the civil rights era and the tragic uh, church bombings in Birmingham where little girls mm-hmm. died, you know. So mm-hmm. he, he takes that bit of history, his own unique contemporary uh, perspective on art song and create uh, he creates something really incredible. Th- this performance, we're going to listen to just a little bit of the uh, first movement. It's called Ballad of Birmingham, and it's performed uh, by a member of the Triloquy family, Will Liverman. Um, and we have uh, Paul Sanchez here on the uh, piano, a little bit of the opening of the Ballad of Birmingham from Two Black Churches by Sean Apebolo. the mm-hmm. 
so many layers to the music you know in the in the piano opening you can hear the glimpses of the church sound the blues the the sort of chords that are really reminiscent of that but mm. it's just sprinkled with other sounds sounds that uh, i think point to not only just the uh, a more contemporary aesthetic of music but something menacing or or yeah. something just around the corner as as we heard in those uh, opening lyrics as uh, performed by will liverman you know we have a, a little child uh, asking her mother can you know i, I want to go march with the people you know let me go out there the mother thinks it's too dangerous um, sends the girl to church instead. And then, of course, you know, we, we, we know what happens next. The church is bombed. So, you know, it's we were, we were talking about refuge at mm -hmm. the beginning of, mm -hmm. of this opus and how sometimes those places of refuge can be danger. You know, uh, if I want to apply that to uh, classical music spaces, generally, we can think of uh, a concert hall as being a refuge, a safe space, a, a neutral space. But it's been a traumatizing space for so many people. It's it can uh, in many ways continue to be a very colonial space. Anyway, th uh, th there's so many things I think uh, that I can unpack out of that music. And I just love um, listening to it and thinking about the evolution specifically of art song to really engage conversations and, and be this really contemporary art thing. So shout out to uh, Sean Apebolo, uh and all of the performers involved in that uh, recording of Two Black Churches. It comes from the uh, album Dreams of a New Day that um, we actually featured when uh, Will Liverman was um, on Triloquy. So really, really glad to, um, to, to have that here. What's your what's your ideas relationship uh, as a broadcaster with art song generally? Do do you uh do you do you put vocal music in a category of you know uh, works that may be able to engage audiences a little more effectively or directly? It's one thing to write a break about this piece of music that represents. X, Y, and Z. Right. Maybe it's more direct for audiences to hear music where they hear words that are speaking to a specific thing. And I'm not talking about like, you know, European art song that's not sung in English. I'm talking about right. contemporary music with English lyrics, with uh, subject matter that is not only understood, but experienced by right. many people. I did talk about that just a few days ago, how um, the how folk music built into a composition is a way for a composer to build rapport with their audience. You know, right. Because the, right. if you hear something that you recognize from your childhood, you perk up, right? Mm -hmm. Or something that means something to your culture or your your homeland. So yeah, I, and if it's in your language and it's speaking to your experience, it's a great way to connect. I know and understand <laughs> that is not really the tradition for uh classical especially classical broadcast to center vocal music you know that's that's the mm -hmm. the medium for orchestral music and chamber music and all of those sorts of things but you know as maybe about a month ago when i was talking about uh, uh i went to a choir concert and it sort of got me back into paying attention to that and, and having mm -hmm. a love and respect for that I, I think there is something to reconsidering the power of art song as a means of engaging new audiences not too far away from the tradition but far right. far away enough to engage someone 
in a different way. Mm-hmm. Again, like I said, there's a lot of really incredible music out there that represents certain things that musically speaks to certain things. If the lyrics and and the aesthetics uh, can you know really directly connect to those folks, there's something to that and mm-hmm. something to be um, paid attention to. So shout out to uh, Sean Apebolo again and all of those uh, performers. But we're going to go ahead and get into uh, the third movement. As I mentioned earlier, um, Elijah Daniel Smith comes back for part two of our conversation. Elijah Daniel Smith is a, a young composer whose star is rising, um, has recently uh, received all sorts of awards and, uh, and and recognition, and it's just a pleasure for me to get to sit down and uh, engage with him. So we continue uh, with the composer talk this week, but we get into um, acknowledging the diversity of Blackness, especially as a composer, and we start here uh, with uh, the challenge of affirming one's uh, art as a composer with confidence, you know, Scott, when you are a composer and you're standing in front of these orchestras and in front of all these people who are grumpy or whatever, they just ready for the lunch break. <laughs> and, you know, you're asking them to play the F sharp a little softer or, or whatever, <laughs> you know, that it, there takes a, a certain level of confidence to really address and engage, you know, a body of musicians in that way. So that's where uh, Elijah and I get started. I'm going to transition us into this conversation with a composition of his titled Animus. Uh, it, it features a uh, soprano saxophone uh, and uh, it sounds like uh, electronics or, or uh, some sort of uh, technology. It's, it's, a, it's a really uh, cool piece of music here. Joseph Connor is the soprano saxophonist in this performance of Animus by Elijah Daniel Smith. Hope you all enjoy this as we get into our conversation. Sometimes if you're working with a more established ensemble or musicians and they make kind of careless mistakes, either they didn't read, you know, practice enough and they don't read the rhythms right, it can be really uncomfortable correcting them, especially if they're significantly older and they're more established in the industry. It can be really tough to, you know, for me as a mid-20s person to look at them and be like, that's wrong. You know, obviously like I'm not gonna say it like that, but it's just like it's it can be really uncomfortable to say like that those those pictures aren't correct. And um so that's something that I think for me is going to be a lifelong struggle to find that balance of being direct and saying like, that isn't what I want. And also finding a way to say like, I don't need to voice this as a, I'm right, you're wrong. And how can I best, you know, get this note out here in a way that makes people feel comfortable in the environment. So working with an orchestra can definitely help because like, sometimes those comments got to be made so quickly that you just say it exactly how it comes out the first time and that and that's that and thankfully a lot of the musicians know like it's not a personal thing maybe they said that a bit like an asshole but like it's because we're on a time crunch and i guess we're gonna get it out there so i think it 
at least maybe it's just because of my age. I feel a little tentative to really, you know, come out and be like, these things are wrong. And maybe that'll come with a little more experience. But I think it's important for composers to, if something isn't correct and you have the time to correct it, to not be shy. Don't be a dick about it, but don't be shy in saying like, these things need to be correct because they want to play it correctly too, you know? Right, right. But it, it has to be more than just age though, because I'm thinking about, let's say we had, uh, Sheku Kani Mason. He wrote a piece of music and he's with the New York Philharmonic or with the London yeah. Phil or, or whatever. They're going to listen to him, you know, and, and yeah. he's young as well. So, I mean, is it when considering age as one of those factors of these power dynamics, do we also have to think about fame or, or what, what, what do you think the other ingredients are in there? I definitely think fame is a big part of it, whether or not, you know, and like if talking to a lot, like a lot of my friends are orchestral musicians and, you know, they talk a lot about like the experience of working with conductors and, you know, a lot of the time, if that element of like personal and professional respect for that conductor isn't there, even outside of their conducting abilities, it might create a different dynamic working with that person. And I think for composers, it's very similar. Like, even if it doesn't, like, if, even if I write something amazing, if they have no idea who I am, they're not going to be hostile towards me, but there's definitely going to be a little more tentativeness on their part in listening to what I have to say as though I do know what I'm talking about. And I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think it's a, a conscious thing of like, I don't know this person, they need to prove themselves to me. But I do think there often is, especially because there are a lot of composers out there who are, you know, a bit off the rocker and they come in, they say wild shit and the ensemble is <laughs> like, oh, okay, here we go. So I think there is often that tentativeness of like, what kind of person are you going to be dealing with here? And so for someone, you know, like Mason, who's a little more, who's not a little, who's, you know, a, a very established musician, like it, it, it's a lot easier. I, not a lot easier, but I'm sure that there's an element there of like, we know who this person is. We know what's going to happen here and we know that we can listen to this person and respect their opinion and they know what they're talking about as opposed to someone like me who's like who the fuck are you like I, like, I you know what i mean so yeah you know yeah the the chaos demon in me loves the idea of a composer going off in front of an orchestra you know i'll, I'll be there rooting on the composer but I, you know relationships are important and yeah. you know what people you know say about you can be more important than of what they thought of your music or or, or that sort yeah. of thing. So I, I understand all of the the different variables, you know, and, and again, I'm thinking about these spaces where, you know, new music, the idea of new music has taken on an aesthetic of its own. As much as we talk about the experience of the composer and the experience of composer to orchestra, we also have to talk about audience. If we don't have an audience, mm. who are we doing this for? What are, what are we doing <laughs> this for? Do you think uh new music as a community as as you've said is aesthetically moving in the correct direction to develop audiences that look a little different than they have in the past i've imagined that a lot of the things that you've written can be just as unfamiliar or challenging to an audience member as a piece by beethoven or schubert probably more so for me yeah um (laughs) yeah i mean i think i think it is moving in the right direction. Um, I think that process has been accelerated because of all that's happened in the last three years. Um, and, you know, I think obviously the pandemic forced people to make music in a different way. And I think that there are some elements of that that are being carried through. I think there's a lot of, there's a strong desire to revert back to what things were before the pandemic because people were 
you know, a, a lot of the time pretty dissatisfied or dissatisfied with the experience of listening to virtual music and fairly so. So I think there are a lot yeah. of people who do kind of want to just go back to what things were. But at the same time, I think there are just as many people who are saying, like, well, wait, we discovered all these new cool things that we could do with digital means. Why are we just ignoring that? Why are we you know, throwing that out? And then also, of course, with all the social unrest that there's been in the last couple of years, the long, long overdue social unrest. Um, I think there are a lot of organizations who are now finally getting on board the equity train and recognizing yep. that like, oh shit, we have a lot of work to do. And so I think their efforts are manifesting in different ways. And a lot of those efforts are being manifested in having a more diverse programming approach or maybe having certain events that are you know, tailored towards a certain demographic or like, Hey, like we're having cheaper tickets for this for, you know, whatever reason, like whether or not these are the right approach. Um, I think the intention is in the right place. And I think that so long as people keep an open mind and people are willing to receive criticism on these efforts, then we'll probably get to where we want to be. Cause I think the second people were like, well, we've, I mean, we had a, we had a fucking night for black people. Like what else, do you, what else do we need? Like we did it. Like, there it is. <laughs> like, like the second we have that mentality, we're right back to where we were 10 years ago, but hopefully that won't be the case anymore. Yeah. What I wish more institutions would realize and understand is that it's not necessarily money that's keeping certain communities out mm. of the space. The example I always bring up is that as soon as Beyonce announces her American tour, you know, we're going to pay the thousands of dollars. We are going to figure it out. You know, that's not what we're doing for the the concert space. I'll, I'll connect this conversation to what we were talking about earlier with program notes. You said that, mm. you know, there are folks out there who will use as big of words as they can and, and speak over uh, uh, the audience's head as a opposed to folks who will write program notes directly to audiences to make sure that they can understand. I wonder how you engage that musically. I'm sure there are pressures, um, especially, you know, as someone uh, going after a PhD right now, pressures <laughs> to, you know, have things as complex or nuanced as, as possible musically. But there are also folks who just want to hear a, a pretty song, as they may yeah. say. How do you yeah. how do you balance those two things as a composer? Um, yeah, I mean, I personally speaking, I don't think there's anything wrong with people saying, I just want to go hear a pretty song. I also know, I don't think there's anything wrong with me saying like, I'm not the fucking person to do that for you. Like, I, like, <laughs> My songs are not pretty. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, there might be a pretty chord in there here and there, but like, you got to wait 20 minutes for that one. So buckle up. I mean, you know, I'm totally kidding, but like, I'm partially kidding. Um, but I think, <laughs> I think with. I think every composer needs to be honest with himself about what they're writing. You know, I think the second you start trying to tailor things to a specific audience or specific group of people because you mm. think they'll like that more is a really good way to start relying on what you th what you know to be successful already. And I think that'll just stagnate you because yeah, if not just stereotypes. Exactly. Yeah. You know, we rely on tropes and rely on things like, oh, these people like this before I'll do it again. So it's just <laughs> like, you know, yeah, I think. I think composers need to be honest with themselves and ask, you know, we, I, every time I write a piece, I have to ask myself, like, why am I writing this particular piece? And what is it that I'm trying to do with this? And, you know, it's important to, to have the understanding that not every piece of music is going to be for everybody. Yeah. And that's okay. 
you know, if you're writing music to exclude people, that's not okay. But if you're writing music that is honest to you and it's you're really interested in, then that's there's nothing wrong with saying like, yeah, these you know a lot of people aren't going to like this, but I really do, and the people I'm making the music with really like it, and that's enough. So I think the balance there can be difficult, um, especially when it comes to inviting people in when you know that you wrote a piece that's kind of just for you. Um, but I think maybe thus far I've been really fortunate and lucky to have written some pieces that are simultaneously um, personal to me and something that I really like that other people seem to like as well. I've, you know, I've just been lucky there. I mean, maybe that won't always be the case, but I think the second you, as a composer, maybe not the second, but I think if, as a composer, you start really trying to like, you know, sell shit and be like, Oh, this will really work again. It's that's a different, that's a different, reason for writing music and there's nothing wrong with that saying like i want to make money off the music that i'm writing but i think for me that would be a very different approach and i think that is kind of not really where new music has been new music tm as you said has been yeah. for a long time so sure sure i, I think that's a great way of, of looking at that i, I, I want to go back to you know something you said uh, regarding equity and equity initiatives a lot of institutions mm -hmm. organizations are getting on that train and 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 working toward you know doing the right thing as as they see it but not all people see the right thing the so-called right thing as good for example mm -hmm. you know your the the call for scores uh, for which you uh, participated and and got a commission was completely open there there weren't demographic based uh, criteria with that said, those demographic based criteria calls for scores do exist. You know, as, as we're recording this, we're uh, in the midst of a partnership with uh, ACO. I am uh, with an orchestra who um, is looking at scores by women. There's another orchestra who is exclusively considering scores by uh, black and brown composers. Uh, from your view, from, from your perspective, why is that a good thing? Or maybe I'll frame the question as what would be your reaction to the person who says that is racist or that is wrong? Yeah. Because I'm sure you know that that's a part of the narrative that comes with equity aligned mm. initiatives. Yeah. Mm. Um, I mean, I think a really good quote, I don't know who it's from, uh, basically said that if when you've been in a position of power, equality can often seem like oppression right um when you've had the power and like when you've been the beneficiary of inequities when you start to level that playing field all of a sudden it feels like people are taking things from you and in reality they're just giving the shit that you shouldn't have had to begin with and distributing it a little more evenly um and so i think for these initiatives that are you know maybe focused on like you know for these orchestras who are only looking at works by female composers it's like if you have a problem with like firstly a lot of the people who complain about that shit are people who don't have any pieces to submit anyway so it's like why do you <laughs> why do you why do you care you know it's okay. like it doesn't it doesn't affect you but it's like it, those things are the smallest possible thing that we could do to make up for centuries of deliberately keeping these people out mm -hmm. and if adding creating a new opportunity for these people is offensive to other people then it's like it, it's clearly not about the opportunity itself it's about the fact that you feel as though you're being excluded from something that honestly you've been excluding people from you know maybe not them personally but like you know it's like come on like if if you really have a problem with these people getting opportunities then it's not really about the opportunities that they're getting it's you have a problem with them being put in the spotlight and you have a problem with the changing demographic of what this world is
And what adds a level of complication to it is that you have the the naysayers or the people who are critical of equity aligned initiatives. And then you have the folks who are um, aligned with equity, but, you know, are problematic on that side of things. For example, mm-hmm. thinking of blackness as one thing, looking for black scores when you're really looking for scores that incorporate hip hop or, or yep. gospel because you, uh, you approximate <laughs> those things. Um, yeah. Considering the way that your blackness is expressed and the mm. and the way that uh, diversity within blackness is expressed through your history, you know, as a, a screamo rock guitarist and and that yeah. sort of thing. Do, do you feel like the industry is is ready to engage the fact that being black is not one thing? Being black is many things. I don't know if they're ready to engage with it. I don't know if they're aware of it to begin Mm. with. Um, I think that a lot of, and not everyone, obviously, like a lot of people, thankfully, especially, you know, the people that we work with, thankfully are very aware of that and, you know, give people the appropriate platforms to express these things. But I think a lot of people still think of like, oh, like, you know, I mean, it's tokenization is about, is like what it really is a lot of the time. I think a lot of these organizations who think of promoting music by black composers see it as like, well, black composers, as you said, like that means like hip hop and rap, right? And it's mm-hmm. just like they and <laughs> and so like when they want to commission a black composer, what they're really thinking is like we want drums and like rhythms, you know what I mean? Like and it's just like or swing, I, I, you know? <laughs> exactly. It's like you 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 play jazz, right? Like you like you like jazz. <laughs> so I think I think a lot of people definitely have that mentality, um, subconsciously, maybe consciously. Um, and they're unaware of the fact that being black means whatever it, you know, a, an, in any individual black person wants it to mean to them. Um, and I think a lot of people do have the expectation for composers of color, not just black composers, but composers of color in general, that our music is going to focus on our race and that that is our contribution to music. That's all we, that's all we have to give is like, you know, and I you know a small thing that I often try to do is like you know as much as I can rather than being like oh he's a black composer it's or she's a black composer they're a black composers like they're a composer who happens to be black you know like they don't have to their racial identity doesn't have to be the sole focus of their music unless they want it to be mm-hmm. and in that case by all means go for it it's your you know it's your identity and you can do whatever you want with it but I think the expectation from composers of color that our music is going to be about being a composer of color can be just as harmful as saying like, oh, like we don't want you to talk about that. Because at that point in time, you're boiling an individual down to one demographic that might be an important demographic to them. But if you're telling them that they have to talk about it on terms that they're that aren't their own, then you're putting them in just as uncomfortable position as if you were to tell them you can't talk about it. So So as a black person who is multiracial, are there aspects of this conversation that don't come to the front. We talk about the black mm. experience all the time when we, you know, get to talking about equity initiatives and that sort of thing. Are, are there aspects of the multiracial experience that we're missing out on, or or not bringing to the front, or not acknowledging? Mm. Um, I'm sure there are. I think one of the biggest problems with it is that the experience of you know a, a multiracial person is so unbelievably nuanced as it is with all you know people who are you know monoracial like it's still incredibly nuanced all the time but like obviously i'm very light-skinned um but there are a lot of people who are biracial half black half white who aren't as light-skinned and they live a different experience as a biracial person as i have because i do think colorism is a huge part in that and you know i think uh 
especially along these lines, it's like one thing that I have noticed being as light skinned as I am is that people are a little more weary of what they would, or uh, people a little, a little less uh, inclined to really believe that I'm black in some capacity. And the number of times yeah. growing up that I've heard like, well, you're not that black, you know, especially when it's like when I was playing in metal bands and shit like that, things that are stereotypically white, people are like, oh, well, you like metal and shit like that. Black people don't like metal. You're not black. So it's like, there's definitely an element there of like, I think my actions as a biracial person have to somehow fulfill their stereotypical idea of what a black person is in order for them to consider me black. Um, and so I think that, that that's a really difficult um, thing to bring into music. I don't, you know, I think, I, I don't know how to do that. Um, there's a movie called Green Book that I think definitely has its problems, but there's a really, you know, for those who don't know it, it's a movie about a black concert pianist who's touring the South and he has a white driver to sort of, you know, be his bodyguard. And there's a moment in the movie that like really spoke to me and I was on a plane and like, I don't like, cry during movies very much like i just i usually you know it's but like there's a moment where the driver who's white looks at the black pan he's like you don't know little richard i love little richard and i know more about your music than you do so i'm i'm blacker than you are and like after that you know the pianist what he says he's like if i'm not black enough and if i'm not white enough then what am i and like that shit really uh stuck with me for a while because i think that really speaks to the experience of a lot of biracial people where it's just like we aren't clearly one thing and being both of those things often isn't an option because people don't really know what that is people don't know what that looks like and people have to say like are you black or not so i think bringing that into the new music world um i think it's for me at least i don't know how i would talk about that just yet um because mm. i think i'm still in the process of figuring it out but i think there needs to be the understanding again that um people's racial identities are complex and nuanced and if you want them to talk about that it has to be of their own volition and they have to be given the space to talk about it however they want to talk about it because it's going to look different for them as it would for someone else so i think maybe just leaving it there is like if you want to talk about this you can you don't have to though so I don't know. As that as you continue to develop your engagement with this conversation, do you see it as an obligation or something that you're just working on? As a well, let's take it back to music. You know, as as a composer, do you feel obliged to make this a part of your process or delivery or or presentation? I don't. Um, I'm sure a lot of people do feel that. Um, because there's a lot of pressure on that right now and for like you know i think a lot of you know for lack of a better term or like not to be too blunt about it but a lot like there's a lot of opportunity out here nowadays for composers of color that wasn't here a few years ago so i think mm -hmm. it can be really enticing to say like well look there are all these opportunities for people of color and i'm a person of color so i'm really going to hype that shit up because it's going to help me get this and like i you know i totally get it um but at the same time for me i would feel as though i'm pandering to if I changed the way I interact with my, or the way I understand my own race to get something out of it, I would feel like that would be, you know, I'd be misrepresenting who I am in a way that I think would be disgustingly dishonest. And it would be, um, I think my music would be way worse because I'd be trying to do something that isn't honest to me. Mm -hmm. I think the way I present myself to people would be really uncomfortable because it's just like people who know me would be like, I don't fucking do that. So it's like, I think, 
for anyone who's in the position of like trying to figure out like what to do with your race, you know, in, in music, I, you know, again, I'd say just be honest with, you know, yourself about who you are. And if it happens that your race is the central focus of your life, that's totally fine. You can do it. But if it's not, don't feel like you have to put it out there because that's what people want from you nowadays. Even if it is what they want from you, don't fucking give it to them. Do it. Yep. You, do with it what you will. Yep. I'll, I'll, I'll throw one more question on this topic <laughs> to you. But before I do that, <laughs> how, how can uh, folks learn more about you, uh, catch up uh, on some upcoming performances and just, you know, learn more about what you do? Yeah. Um, I mean, my, my website is ElijahDanielSmith.com. Um, I've, you know, your full government, my full government right there. Um, <laughs> my social security is up there. No, I'm kidding. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I usually just post any updates and stuff on there. I've got my SoundCloud link to that. So you can listen to my music on my website and all that sort of stuff. Um, my Instagram is just Elijah Daniel Smith. I don't really post much on there. Um, but I think if there's, you know, I'm not super engaged with social media, um i'm definitely uh one of the people who just scrolls and likes and doesn't post very much um so i don't know uh the most that you'll find about me is all on there and i'll probably run into folks and have conversations but yeah that sounds great so to to tie a bow on this you know and again returning to this nuanced conversation of race we can spend all day talking about what white people people who are not people of color what they're doing wrong and how they need Mm. to shift and those sorts of things i think some of the more difficult conversations is how people of color need to shift to acknowledge more of our diversity Mm. i wonder if you have a charge specifically to black people who are not multiracial when it comes to celebrating and acknowledging our diversity as it manifests in food and music and in mm-hmm. fashion and anything. Oh man. I don't know if I'd, I, I don't know if I'd call it a charge, um, but <laughs> yeah, this is what's going to get you in trouble. Go for it. Yeah, exactly. I was like, Whoa, man. <laughs> um, I would say that, and a really important thing is, um, again, letting each individual person of color define what their racial identity is for themselves and what it means for them. You know, for for you know, let black people define their own blackness and let it be what it is. You know, um, I think there's, and this you know definitely isn't everyone, obviously, and um, it's probably a minority community within our minority community. Um, but people who do have this expectation of like, if you're black, you have to speak for the whole community all the time. Um, and I think that that can be a lot of pressure for anyone. Um, and I think that sometimes you, you just got to let people do what they want to do regardless. You know, if, if they want to do something that you think is kind of weird or like, you know, like oh, black people don't do that shit, like who gives a shit. Black people don't do that shit yet because we haven't, we probably haven't been allowed to do it yet. That's probably why. So it's like, if someone's got an interest in that, then let them do it and support them in it and support their interests. And, you know, I think yeah, another another thing like this for me is, you know, when I was growing up, like the sport that I played the most was hockey, ice hockey. And, you know, people are like, I can't, I can't fucking play hockey. And it's like, yeah, because <laughs> we haven't fucking been allowed to and because it's expensive and that should, those means haven't been there. So it's like if someone has these sorts of interests, you know, let them do it and support them in it and let them let them bring their own racial experience into it if they want to. And if they don't want to, that's fine.
tune by Elijah called Shifting Ground. It's performed there by uh, Sandbox Percussion. It, it, it's, it, it's something to me that there are so many, uh, I'm thinking about specifically Sandbox Percussion, so many musicians out here just living their best life, playing mm. contemporary music, not getting into arguments about folks about balanced programming and and all of that stuff. And I think it 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 really comes through in the music. I, even even uh, considering that we this is just percussion music that we were listening to. It's not as tonal or anything as a vocal piece. For me, anyway, there's a part of the fun and the and the lightness that I still hear in it. You know, just mm. four guys banging on stuff and and seeing how it all lines up. I think that's fun, and and it's great that uh, Elijah is you know writing for percussion as as well. I think that's really cool. One of the things you know that we uh, ended the conversation with. One of the things we were talking about is uh, the diversity of Black thought and the Black experience in classical music, and the fact that if there are some people who want to put that to the front, that's great. If there are some Black uh, artists, artists of color who don't want to put that to the front, that's okay too. I think. Uh, as as we you know have been doing this work and having these conversations over the years one of the reasons why we talk about platforming black people is to platform uh, an experience or a perspective that more people can learn from even from the equity standpoint you know understanding the the barriers that uh that that you know existed those historical barriers and platforming for that point do you think we're to a spot, at least where you are in the industry, where we can talk about platforming Black folks without the expectation of learning or without the expectation of a growing perspective. Have have we had enough of the conversation to platform Black music just because a Black person is, is writing music mm-hmm. and that's it? Yeah, that's been my goal for the last year and a half to create programs that can be played anytime but you know you you know what this business is like though yeah they there has to be a theme or a hook to put the music on and i always say all right look we let's do that and make it so that it can be put on whatever hour of whatever shift and it'll make sense yeah you know again black thought is very uh diverse and varied for me, it's hard for me to think about sidelining or not foregrounding my blackness in a space because for me, it's it's very significant. I think about the uh, Langston Hughes essay where he's very critical of the idea of wanting to be known just as something and not a black something because his mm-hmm. argument was being known just as that something is an aspiration to be something else because when most in his case he was talking about being a writer versus just a, a versus a black writer mm-hmm. his argument was that if you want to just be known as a writer when most people think of a writer they're not thinking about a black person so are you aspiring to be that or or to be perceived as that so you know there there are many nuances uh, to the conversation but you know I, I think I do have to agree that I hope we can get to the point. Um, where black composers, black conductors, black musicians are being platformed in a way that they want to be platformed and not as a means of learning or community mm-hmm. building, mm-hmm. not, you know, commodifying a uh, black presence in a space. 
for um, something else. So, you know, a, a really great conversation that we can always build and expand upon. Huge thanks uh, again to Elijah Daniel Smith and all of the incredible things that he's doing out here in the world of new music. All right. Well, um, we're going to talk a little bit. I'm going to talk just a little bit <laughs> about Wakanda Forever in, in the fourth movement here. I'm, I'm not going to give away any spoilers, but I think there are just a few things that I want to speak to because they uh, apply to the broader world. So we're going to transition uh, into the fourth movement here uh, with a cut from the score. Music here, of course, by the one and only Ludwig Göransson, you know, one of the composers invited to the cookout, I suppose. Mm. We have <laughs> we have accepted him of uh, this Hollywood orchestra. You know, I'll also notice uh, also conducted by the one and only Anthony Parnther, a great uh, friend of mine and a very important black maestro out here changing the world. This track uh, from the Wakanda Forever soundtrack is called Sirens. So we'll listen to a little bit of it to get us into the fourth movement. What's your feeling about movie score music on broadcast classical radio? Is that something that you think is more appropriate in like a show about that? Do you think it's appropriate to mix or, or useful to mix these sorts of sounds next to the uh, Schubert leader or whatever? How do you approach you know, in your world? How, how would you approach the movie score music? Uh, both, because we know that movie music does well when it's part of a specialty show. I mm -hmm. think you can point to whatever <laughs> uh, classical station around and they've got something that's geared that way. And I find it more and more showing up on my playlists oh good of course yeah yeah um Devante hines uh his music um and help me out who uh michael abel's yeah you know his his film and concert music is coming across more yeah well you know first thing i want to say is rest in power to chadwick bozeman it's so hard uh for me anyway to think about an actor who took on a role and that role created such a defining cultural moment mm -hmm. uh, at least for a, a community i mean m maybe there are, are things that are, are, are folks that you can think of but in my experience he really stands alone in that regard i think wakanda forever is is one of the uh first films if not the only film that kind of had me choked up in the first seconds of the film you know the the, the movie a lot of times when actors uh uh die they, you know, rewrite scripts in a way to say, oh, well, they're doing this or that. Mm -hmm. Wakanda Forever directly just addressed, you know, the pain and the reality of, you know, what he was dealing with in uh, uh, in silence, you know, his his cancer and not really talking about it and all of that stuff. I don't think the, the word cancer is used, but the, the, the directors, the writers did not um, suspend reality mm -hmm. for the sake of just telling some spicy story about the the former king of Wakanda. It, they, they really do head on uh, honor Chadwick Boseman in, in that really touching way, and 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 it's it, it's it's something 
to me. I, I I don't know if you can think, like I said, I don't know if you can think of another actor who had that sort of impact. I'm, I'm sure they're out there, but I just feel a lot of gratitude to know that in 40 years, you know, my, my sister's kids, when, when they're, you know, 20 years old or, or whatever, I can say, oh, well, y'all have heard of Black Panther, but I was there. And I remember when Chad Mc, uh, Chadwick Boseman took on the role and, and the cultural impact uh, that was there. So, you know, that, that, that's the, really the, the first thing I'm, I'm thinking about there, but what, what I wanted to address in this movie, and, and again, not, you know, giving away spoilers, we have a lot of communities of color fighting each other as a tool for something else. Now, while this is a plot point that we can get into and, and, you know, pick sides or whatever, who we're rooting for in the film, for me, that connects to the outside world, to the real world, because we have a lot of that. And not only just communities of color doing infighting and being divisive for the sake of control of, of other people. I'm also thinking about the class conversation, how we can let things like politics really divide us when everybody out here struggling, everybody doing their best. And, you know, the the upper class people, the the more privileged people, you know, they're they're just watching us do do what we Fight do for the scraps. especially the the politicians just watching us do what we do and 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 they live in you know their their, their best life it's it sounds really pollyanna-ish to continue to say maybe trite a word you used earlier this idea of the only way to really move forward to get forward to progress uh society is to do it together but the more that I, you know, have been thinking about it again, you know, that we're in November when we crossed over into 2022 back in January, I, you know, it was one of my resolutions, New Year's resolutions to think more about class solidarity and, and, and how that can actually happen. And from my perspective, politics, as it were, and I'm not saying democracy, but politics, you know, CNN, Fox News, you know, headline politics is not a tool of unification. It's a tool of division. And if we're going to refer to it as a tool, we have to acknowledge that it's being used, that there's some intentionality behind that divisiveness and, and keeping us infighting as a class of people. What do you think? Is politics the way forward? Is politics going to save us? Is politics going to create unity for us to move forward? Or is it going to inhibit that at the end of the day? I'll tell you what saved us. Um, black women and young people that went and voted in historic numbers. Um, we need to jettison the people that are uh, reporting from the echo chamber. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, they want to argue about how uh, the polls have been so wrong the last four election cycles. Well, then, uh, why are we still listening to the people who are yeah. so wrong? Yeah. I mean, shout out to the um, Gen Zers and right. shout out to the black women. These these election results aren't 90-10, 70-30, 40 Most of them are just along that 50-50 line. We're playing a numbers game. We're not playing a dialogue game. We're not playing a, a values game, a, a, a recognition of humanities game. We're playing a how do we get more votes on our side mm -hmm. so that for these next two years or four years, we can have some, you know, again, the idea of refuge. We can have some sort of refuge mm. for a few years before we have to do it again. I'm, I don't want to diminish the role of uh, young people and black women 
in you know changing the tides uh, in many areas of the country. I also just have to acknowledge that it's not unity building at the end of the day. It's it's everyone digging their heels in even deeper mm-hmm. and hoping that more people are digging their heels in on our side than the opposite. You got it. You got it. Can we talk about why people voted for Herschel Walker? We can. It's not ideals. Like I just said, it's not dialogues. It's the team sports. And it's the uh, the the numbers game, as Dave Chappelle said, and we didn't talk about the opening uh, SNL dialogue from <laughs> by Dave Chappelle, but as he said, it's you know you know I I don't he does it's hard to t- want to talk about a black man you know I'm not going to disparage this man Herschel Walker, but let's just face it, he don't need to be up in there, mm-hmm. and and they have a runoff down there in in Georgia right now, half of the voting populace voted for this man. And then, of course, we talk about um, conservative evangelicals and all that sort of thing. They chose not to vote for the preacher. They they chose to uh, not to support the person who has dedicated uh, his life to the, the Judeo-Christian God. Mm-hmm. What what are we dealing with here? If if the the actual churchiness isn't going to pull over evangelicals to, to that other side, it's hard to know what is. It's, it's, it's hard to know how to escape this team sports dynamic we're living in politically. Consolidation of power. You put up a person that will win the election and be the rubber stamp for the rest of the party. It's it's re- what they 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 start getting into the idea of retail journalism. Have you heard of retail I journalism, haven't. which is the, the the ginning up things, you know, the selling it, you know, really uh, ginning up stories, blowing them out of proportion, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we're seeing retail politics. Say more about that. I don't I don't know if I understand the so commodifying talking points or. Everybody's getting the same memo. You get the you get the memo from corporate, mm-hmm. right? This is what we're talking about today. These are the talking points. Everybody starts using those. As far as and news stations or media outlets. Or- politicians say those to the news outlets oh, so I that see. the news outlets go and they report all the talking points. Oh, so it, it just creates an industrial complex. That's what I'm that, saying. That results in... So, okay. So, so, so what do we do? We, so we the, vote for different people or we... What, what's, what, what, what do we need to do? Well, I, I think that the, what the the way that we were heading is into this area where, you, you know, if you go to an Olive Garden in Chicago and you go to one in South Carolina. Which I would never but go on. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you're going to get pretty much the same thing, right? Yep, That's right. the idea. Yeah. So hmm. v- vote, for okay. the, vote for the local is what I'm saying. <laughs> you, you, um, yes. It's... And it's it seems like it's easy to fall into the uh, and, and I'm not disagreeing with you. I think it would be easy for that to turn into sort of a a state's rights thing mm-hmm. as they like to talk mm-hmm. about in the South. So it, it is a a thin line, a delicate balance between some sort of federalness along the uh, along with you know really localized politics again Maria Issa mm-hmm. West Sider you know all that that's that's a, as local as you can get you know we're talking about the actual neighborhood and and advocacy for the neighborhood there is power in that mm-hmm. so i so i guess what we're talking about is empowering individuals to really uh go into these spaces to represent their communities instead of a professional trajectory that mm. separates you know a lot of these politicians from their 
from their communities, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm. Back to Herschel Walker. I don't have a problem identifying tokenization when I see it again. It's not about him as a person. It's just about understanding how blackness is weaponized in that way. I hope that this is something that I don't really have to dig into because it hopefully is obviously seen how you know a certain political party has done what they can to speak to a, a, a heightened attention to diversity and all of those things and to find someone to just platform that can talk, do their talking points. Again, you're talking about the uh, uh, media, po- uh, retail politics. Mm-hmm. Is, is, is that, I'll, let me, I'll just ask you then, do you think that's something that has to be unpacked? Is it obvious or, or maybe it's not obvious that a Herschel Walker is platformed through his blackness to serve a certain purpose. And there's the name. You know, and and make no mistake, they're they're going they're leaning way into the fact how he was a small town boy and he's supposed to be the epitome of what's possible, you know, that he can grow up and play football and make a name for himself and now be a politician. And this is why dialogues and conversation and uh being comfortable with the uncomfortable is so important because I can imagine the person who is not black, who feels uncomfortable saying something like Herschel Walker is being platformed because he's black or those things, because, you know, there's, there's the, the counter argument. Oh, so now, now you're racist. You just think that we're picking him because he's black and da 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 and blah, blah, blah. But I think we just have to be able to have the conversation and not center the people, but center and understand the tactic. It's obvious mm. to me what, what 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 this was. And I guess, you know, the, they say the proof is in the pudding. It works or something because half the half the folks down there in Georgia voted for him. I hope that we can always remain mindful of how tokenization uh, tokenization works. You know, speaking specifically in the arts, just really understanding the way that certain traditions and certain status quo are perpetuated through black people, through so-called black excellence. We we have to be able to recognize that otherwise we're going to have folks like him in the Senate and who knows what is going <laughs> <laughs> happen mm. happen after that. I don't know. I don't I don't really like digging into the politics, but a, as I was watching Black Panther and and just really applying that to some of the things that, you know, were around me and were I was fresh out of uh, the, this midterm season, it, it has to be addressed. I think there's certainly application of this conversation in the arts. We just have to be be comfortable really engaging it and addressing it and being uh in conversation and dialogue with people from other communities enough to know you know when we're talking about tokenization and when we're talking about a diversity of black thought because i'm gonna tell you right now (laughs) herschel walker for me does not represent uh some sort of uh representation of diverse black thought he's squarely represents what it means to be tokenized by a community and weaponized for the sake of some problematic nonsense um god bless america i suppose (laughs) here we are uh past midterms let's uh find ways to uh inspire and engage and explore unity and uh and do it through the arts or wherever we exist in this ecosystem thank you for listening see you next week (laughs) 